This week, we are starting a three-week sermon series on the book of James, which is a really short book, kind of towards the back of our Bibles. I feel like we have to spend just a little bit of time talking about Martin Luther. He is one of the most famous Christians, theologians that we have had over the past thousand years or so. And the reason you probably know his name sitting in a Protestant church is because he is the father of the Protestant Reformation, of when we as Protestants made our break away from the Catholic Church. And he has a really interesting story, and I'm not going to bore you with it, but if you feel led, I'd encourage you to look him up today, especially if that name just sounds familiar, but you're not really sure about who he, who he is or what he wrote or, or what he did. He was German. And at one point in his life, he was actually an ordained Catholic priest. But as he matured in his faith and, and, and as, he, as he grew in his ministry, he began to take several issues with the Catholic Church of, of his day, with some of their beliefs and with some of their, some of their practices, which is what ultimately led him to nail those 95 theses on the door of that church, right? I mean, that's when, when we think of Martin Luther, that's what we think of. And one of his primary issues with the Catholic Church of, of his day was their belief in and practice of indulgences, which an indulgence was a way that the Catholic Church had simply monetized forgiveness. The way an indulgence worked was that you would pay a certain sum of money to the church, and it was believed that in that payment you were being forgiven for some of your past sins, or you could even pay for a loved one to be released from purgatory and make their way into, into heaven. Luther's worry, I think among many things, but the core worry of that for him was that that practice, that belief in some way for people was placing their works above their, their faith. And it's that specific issue that he had that led him to develop a doctrine, which is still one of the pillars of faith that we stand on today as, as Protestants, which in Latin is sola fide, but you've heard it before, I think, saved by faith alone. It's a doctrine that he developed as he was reading some of Paul's writings. And he believed and taught, as we still do today, that salvation or redemption, that it is a gift of grace from God, something that we do not deserve, something that we could not earn, no matter the works that we are able to accomplish. And the only thing that we have to do to accept it is to believe, is to have faith in the risen Christ and in the grace that he offers to us. So far, Luther sounds like a really great guy, doesn't he? Yeah. But Luther was not perfect. I mean, I know none of us are perfect, but Luther really had, he, he had his flaws. I mean, if you think about what he did, you realize that you have to be pretty bold to do what he did to start the Protestant Reformation, to nail those 95 issues that he had with the Catholic Church on the door of a church. And to pit himself as a priest against the Catholic Church, the only church of, uh, of the day. He was not afraid to be bold. He was known, and he still is, for having a strong, somewhat abrasive personality at, at times. He wasn't afraid to speak his mind 
especially in some of his, some of his writings. So uh, when you go to seminary, you meet a bunch of nerds that are just like you. And so when I was in seminary, and when we were in our church history class, and I was learning about Martin Luther, we found a website called Luther Insults. And it is as amazing as it sounds. Google it tonight. Please look at it. It's so good. You pull it up, and there's just a button that you click that says, insult me. And it randomly throws up an insult that Luther wrote in one of his writings. And they are so good. Here's, here's one, of, one of my favorites. There you are, like butter and sunshine. <laughs> and then here's another one that I love. I just rolled through them today for probably longer than I'm proud of. You people are more stupid than a block of wood. He wrote that. That's like in theological writings that he wrote and was published. Luther had a strong personality, and he was not afraid to use strong language. He wasn't afraid to tell you if he disagreed with you and he thought that you were leading people down down the wrong path. And really, when I read those, I realize that he just didn't have a filter, like at, at all, even when he even when he was writing. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us that he had some pretty strong takes on Scripture as well. So much so that he was pretty outspoken about the fact that he thought two books should probably be removed from our Bibles all together. One of them is Revelation, because he thought that it would offer more confusion to people than, than grace, right? He thought that it was a stumbling block to most instead of something that, that was useful, but, but the other is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And it's the book that we're going to spend the next three weeks in. Luther thought that the book of James should be completely removed from our canon of Scripture. That short little book, that book that's only five chapters, he thought that book should be completely taken out. James is more about what we are to do because we are Christians rather than what we are to believe as, as Christians. It demands us to begin to think about how we're going to put our faith in, into action, right? Now that we believe in the risen Christ, what are we going to do about it as, as a people of faith? But Luther was not a fan. In fact, he called it an, an epistle of straw. That's what he thought that James was. And the passage that we're about to read today that we're going to kick off these three weeks with is the passage that made Luther want to kick this book out of, out of the Bible. And this morning, I want us to ask the question of whether or not we think he's right. Do we think James has a place in our scripture or do we side with Luther thinking that it is an epistle of straw, that it's something that we could throw out of our canons and we might even be better for it? Let's read, and maybe by the end of our discussion time together, we'll, we'll figure out an answer. We're in James chapter 2. We're in verses 1 through 17. Let's read together this morning. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? 
to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a law breaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs... What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. If Luther were to write a book of the Bible, I think it would be written with a similar tone with the way that James is written. James doesn't mince words either, does he? He speaks about as directly as he possibly can, in this case about favoritism or about how we, how we treat people. And especially after reading those last few verses, maybe now you can begin to see why Luther wasn't a very big fan of the book of James. I mean, if you think about it, Luther's whole movement, his whole impact on the trajectory of the Christian faith is in large part rooted in that belief that we are saved by faith and faith alone. So it is no surprise that he is not a big fan of those last verses that we just read. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is, is dead. I.e., the phrase that I think you've probably heard before, faith without works, is dead. The question, again, for us this morning is, is Luther right? Is James an epistle of straw? Does it actually contradict that doctrine that we still hold to be true, that we are in fact saved by faith and faith alone? Should we throw it out like Luther tells us that we, that we should do? I saw a study done by a research group called Barna sometime in the last few years. Barna typically focuses on religious trends and, and cultural trends to try to help the church better understand where the people sitting in the pews actually, actually are. And it, it specifically focused on millennials' relationship with, with the church and specifically what they think of the church. And I'm a millennial, so it kind of caught my eye. Usually I see those pop up in my email and I just keep on scrolling, but I saw that and I was like, wow, I wonder what millennials actually think of, of the church. And the findings stuck with me. I really haven't been able to get them, to get them out of my head. And, and the one that stuck with me the most was this. 66% of millennials, 66% of, of my generation 
They think that American churchgoers are hypocrites. 66% of millennials, they believe that because of how they have observed us acting, us, us church folks, they believe that the church is full of hypocrites. People that say one thing, but then do something else. And the reason they think this is because of how they have observed us living out our faith. And look, we we can disagree with that all day long. We can argue back until we are blue in the face that we are not a room full of hypocrites. We can say that it's not true, but the reality is someone has been watching how we have been acting, how we have been living knowing the core truth that we abide to as Jesus as our risen Savior, and they look at us and say, yeah, you say one thing on Sundays, but then you do something completely different during the week. And that is why I think Martin Luther is wrong. That's why I think we need the book of James I think we desperately need what James has to say for us today. Because James is written to the church. James is written to a body of believers just like like us, who knows that they are saved by faith and by faith alone. People who know that Jesus is the Savior, who believe in the triune God, who know the basic tenets of the faith. A church who already knows what to believe and what they do believe, but now needs to be asked, so what? You believe in the divinity of Christ. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to begin to live that in your daily life? That's even how he addresses the reader at the beginning of chapter 2, what we just read. My brothers and sisters, believers, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. I think Luther misinterpreted this this epistle, this this letter. Because I I don't think that James is suggesting that that works can in any way take the place of, of faith. I think James is stating what what at least I believe to be true, that a faith in the living God, a faith in Christ as Savior, that it should lead to works. That believing in Christ is really just the first step. That, That the transformation of our lives and the transformation of our communities, that it begins to happen when we live out that faith and there are a million ways that we can live out our faith the first few verses of our scripture for this morning they give us just one example in the form of a parable a parable about how we're going to treat other people it is a simple and direct teaching that james starts this kind of section of his of his letter with He says, you're hosting a meeting. One man comes in wearing fine clothes and a gold ring. He's walking beside another man who doesn't have a gold ring and his clothes are filthy and tattered and haven't been washed in months. 
And James said, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, then you aren't loving your neighbor as the law commands, i.e., you aren't living out your faith. It's about as straightforward as it gets, isn't it? Sometimes parables are tricky and there's a lot of middle ground and, and we discern what they mean and they can mean multiple things. But this parable is really, is really not like that. This parable is where James launches off to begin to talk about how our faith should be affecting our works. And this parable made me think of a story that someone told me about my grandfather. And some of you may know this story, but I, I could not get this story of him out of my head. And so I want to I share it with you because I think it's an example to us and maybe an example of this parable playing out in, in our modern day. My grandfather was a Methodist pastor. He church, served churches all over the Birmingham area. And someone who served with him told me this story years and years ago, I think. I think I remember hearing this story about him when I was in high school. But one, one Sunday morning, I think it was a church down in Avondale, my grandfather was leading worship. I think he was the senior pastor there at the time. And he was up there doing the announcements and the prayers. And it was a space probably about the same size as this, but they had a balcony in the back. And nobody really sat in the balcony. There weren't pews in the balcony. There was just some folding chairs up there. But while he was giving the announcements and kind of the invocation for worship, a woman walked in and, and sat down in the middle of the balcony. And this lady was out of place. She was wearing tattered rags. Her hair was a complete mess. She had like a streak of mud or grease across her face. She clearly did not get the memo for this whole wear your Sunday best thing, right? I mean, she completely stuck out like a sore thumb. And because she didn't sit down here with everybody else and she sat up at the balcony, nobody knew that she was there except for him. And maybe the choir behind him. But she was very much out of place. And she kind of wobbled across the balcony and, and, and sat down. And I can't help but wonder what was going through his head as she watched her come and sit down. But the service went on, right? They sang a couple of hymns, and still, right, still no one in the congregation knew that she was there. And my, he, my grandfather got up to do something. I don't know if it was to pray or to invite the ushers to come down to receive the offering. I'm not sure what it was, but, but he stood up, and as he was speaking, she actually stood up and interrupted him and yelled out, Pastor, I've got something to say. And at this point, everybody knew that she was there. Because if that happened to us, all of your heads would what? <laughs> right? I mean, swivel around. Because most of you seem to have caught the memo that we don't really do that in the Methodist church, right? We don't really yell out in church that much. And everybody was waiting for how he was going to respond. What was he going to say? It became one of those standoff moments, right, where it feels like 10 minutes, but it's probably actually less than, than 10 seconds. Everybody asking themselves the same question, what is he going to do? What, what is going to happen next? And again, the way I see it, I, I think he had several options for how he, he could respond to this. I think he could politely tell her that he would be more than happy to talk with her after the service, after, after worship. 
I think he could have given a look to whoever those ushers were in his church, right? Like the secret service of the church, you know, like I need her out of here, right? I think he also could have just done his best to ignore and just let the next hymn player, let, let the accompanist come in. And I think all of those, right? I think all of those would have been somewhat acceptable and, and respectable ways to handle that, that situation. I mean, there is no telling what she has to say, is there? There are kids in here. We don't know who she is. Do we really want to let her speak in worship? And clearly she does not understand how this whole church thing is supposed to work, right? I wonder if that were to happen today, what what would you want me to do? What would your inner voice be screaming for your pastor to do up here? Get her out? Or invite her to stay. He did what I think I probably wouldn't do. He looked up at her and said, Sister, what's on your heart? And she just stood there in silence. I think probably amazed at the response that she received. And then, y'all, I swear it's like out of a movie, but I promise you this is what happened. She opened her mouth and she began to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you shouldn't be surprised that she began to weep as she sang. And suddenly it became a moment where everybody was aware of the presence of God in this place. And I don't know if James was on my grandfather's mind when he made that decision. I'm guessing that it probably wasn't. But I could not help this week but to see the correlation of that moment with where James is trying desperately to pull us as believers. Because friends, faith without works is dead. Y'all, I think we need James. I think the world needs James, I think our communities desperately need us as a people of faith to be a people who are seeking to live out that faith. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks in the book of James, and all of it is just as practical as it was this morning. So my hope for you is that when you walk out of this place this afternoon, that you would be asking yourself, God, where are you calling me to live out my faith? God, where is the rubber need to hit the road for me with what I know I believe and with what I am willing to do? Because I think the truth for us, right, the truth for us is that when we start being a people who are focused on not just believing in Jesus, but also walking in the ways of Jesus and living out that faith, that those looking in on the outside, they might just stop calling us hypocrites. And instead, they might come join us for worship. They might quit feeling boxed out of our communities and they might just begin to see themselves fitting into the love of Christ with us. But there is only one way to find out. Where is God calling you to live out your faith? This week, this month, this year. Because faith without works is dead.
the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in the gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.